In the same month that Abraham Lincoln was reelected, Major General William Tecumseh Sherman began a campaign that cut a swath through the very heart of Dixie. Severing his supply line and committed to living off the country, he hoped to break the will of Southern resistance and knock Georgia out of the war. This episode, part one, details the military chessboard that was late summer and fall of 1864, the moves and calculations that had to occur in order to breathe life into Sherman's plans. This is the story of the principles and conditions by which one of the most remarkable campaigns in American military history came about. This is the story of how Sherman's march to the sea became a reality. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Wednesday, August the 11th, 1880. In Columbus, Ohio, some 5,000 veterans gathered at the site of the state fair. They had just listened to a speech by native Ohioan President Rutherford B. Hayes. With his oration complete, another buckeye was called for. Tall, sinewy, a large head and long neck, his face a regular nest of wrinkles. Usually excitable and animated, his features this day expressed cold determination, especially his mouth. William Tecumseh Sherman looked out to the masses and said, There is many a boy here today who looks on war as all glory, but boys, it is all hell. Just like the oft-confused quote, Sherman is still a man of many reeds, complex. He, like Stonewall Jackson, remains a study of contradictions. Rebellious, he held a profound respect for law and order. One moment he could be logically ruthless, the next swimmingly compassionate. An agnostic who could rain down destruction with Old Testament fury. Indeed, for many, his very name is synonymous with callous and destructive warfare. Once in September of 1864, he snorted, If the people raise a howl against my barbarity and cruelty, I will answer that war is war and not popularity-seeking. And yet, the same man also said, But my dear sirs, when peace does come, you may call on me for anything. Then I will share with you the last cracker and watch with you to shield your homes and families against danger from every quarter. William Sherman was once described as the concentrated quintessence of Yankeedom. Throughout his military career, he never acknowledged an error and never repeated it. The man who almost always smoked or chewed a cigar proved to be a mediocre tactician, 
but he had a quick strategic mind. Confronted by major problems, he grasped them rapidly. Tabbed, the most original genius of the American Civil War, he, to most Southerners, is also the most hated. He not only waged war against the Confederacy, but also the press. And once said of the nation's capital, Washington is as corrupt as hell. And speaking of politicians, he blamed them for starting the war. To their excesses, he believed democracy was essentially mob rule. Then and now, complex, controversial. The very mention of his name invites knee-jerk-like responses a century and a half after the fact. His command sprang from the chemistry he shared with Ulysses S. Grant. They trusted. They supported one another. And in the early months of 1864, General-in-Chief Grant ordered all Union armies forward. In Virginia, Major General George Gordon Meade's Army of the Potomac. Major General Nathaniel Banks' Federal Army on the Red River in Louisiana. Also in Virginia, Major General Benjamin Butler's force operating up the James River. Major General Franz Siegel's army in the Shenandoah Valley. And on Saturday, May the 7th, some 80,000 men under William Sherman in Chattanooga, Tennessee. His military objective was the southern city second most in importance to the Confederacy, Atlanta. His route there from Chattanooga would be over and through difficult terrain, both for supply and tactical maneuvering. Yet, no matter the military and geographical obstacles that faced his three combined armies, the armies of the Tennessee, Ohio, and Cumberland, after four months and 130 miles, his army occupied Atlanta on Friday, September the 2nd, 1864. Its fall prompted Southern diarist Mary Boykin Chestnut to write, We are going to be wiped off the earth. Amplifying Chestnut's concern, it was going to be a tough time for the Confederacy. A little over two months later, on November the 8th, Abraham Lincoln was re-elected. A popular mandate from northern voters to finish the war. In Atlanta, from September into November, Sherman looked to rest and re-equip his men. The captor of Atlanta wrote of his time there, We felt perfectly at home. We had uninterrupted communications with the rear. The trains arrived with regularity and dispatch and brought us ample supplies. Though proud of his army's success, he was also quite aware that he was deep in enemy territory with more than 80,000 mouths to feed, and his supply artery was a single railroad track that ran more than 300 miles back through northwestern Georgia to Chattanooga and on to Nashville. That lifeline was all too vulnerable for Confederate cavalrymen under Bedford Forrest and young Joseph Wheeler. Both easily disrupted that long line with slashing raids. As Sherman himself acknowledged, I've got my wedge in pretty deep and must look out that I don't get my fingers pinched. 
To address his concern, he decided to make Atlanta a more secure and productive base. On Wednesday, September the 7th, just five days after the city fell, Sherman informed the citizens that had not already fled the city to pack up what they could and evacuate. That order struck the city like an unexpected thunderclap. Mayor James M. Calhoun protested, as did the commander of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, John Bell Hood. Those two and the city's councilmen protested the evacuation would be, in their words, appalling and heartrending. Hood, who was at Lovejoy's Station, just 30 miles south of Atlanta, was livid. Then, when Sherman asked him to pass Atlanta's refugees through his lines, Hood's anger boiled over. The native Kentuckian wrote that Sherman's order was uncivilized and constituted studied and ingenious cruelty. That triggered a fiery exchange of communications between the two. Sherman wrote that he had sound military reasons for his decision. Allowing citizens to remain in the occupied city meant Sherman would have to maintain a large garrison to control and protect them. And if military action ensued, those citizens would be in the line of fire. Then he expanded his argument. To Sherman, the South started the war and therefore was responsible for all subsequent bloodshed. To Hood, he wrote the September note already mentioned. If the people raise a howl against my barbarity and cruelty, I will answer that war is war and not popularity-seeking. To Mayor Calhoun, he said, you cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will. War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. And those who brought war into our country deserve all the curses and malediction a people can pour out. And he also added, one might as well appeal against the thunderstorm as against these terrible hardships of war. And so, between September the 11th and 20th, 446 families, about 1,600 townspeople, left. While those folks evacuated, Sherman still had to deal with his greatest concern, John Bell Hood's 40,000-man army. Responding to its potential threat, Sherman came up with a most unconventional and risky plan. He explained it in a communication to Grant. Rather than sit still and hold Atlanta, he wanted to resume the offensive by marching his army across Georgia. To do that, he would cut his supply line and live off the land. After studying Georgia's entries from the 1860 U.S. Census, he reasoned, Where a million of people find subsistence, my army won't starve. And in his letter to Grant, he added a personal note. If you can whip Lee and I can march through the Atlantic, I think Uncle Abe will give us 20 days leave of absence to see the young folks. Yours as ever. Thus, the seed was planted for one of the most famous and controversial marches in United States military history. There was precedent. Eighteen years earlier, Winfield Scott in the Mexican War, had successfully carried out a similar campaign. He abandoned his base at Veracruz and marched inland to Mexico City. 
European military men watched and were equally disbelieving and fascinated. Now, Sherman wanted to do essentially the same thing, but there was a fly in the ointment. Sherman learned that Hood and his Army of Tennessee were stirring. Still, a heads-down, arm-swinging Hood was desperate to make amends for the loss of Atlanta and for suffering some 21,000 killed and wounded. He wanted to march northwest toward Chattanooga and Nashville. He wanted to tear up the railroad to Atlanta and, by doing so, choke Sherman's supplies. The Kentuckian even fancied a drive through Nashville and up into Kentucky. As he planned and quite honestly dreamed, he, on Thursday, the 8th of September, demanded that President Jefferson Davis remove his Army's most experienced commander, Lieutenant General William Joseph Hardy, whom Hood blamed for earlier defeats. Reluctantly, Davis sent Hardy to Charleston, where he took over the Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. The removal of the popular general did little to heal a wounded and angry Confederate army. Many still blamed Hood for sacrificing far too many around Atlanta, and the number who deserted skyrocketed. This troubling news prompted a Confederate response from Richmond, and it came in the form of President Davis visiting Macon, Georgia on Thursday, September the 22nd. There to raise the sagging morale of the population, he told those that gathered, friends are drawn together in adversity. Our cause is not lost. Sherman cannot keep up his long line of communication and retreat sooner or later he must. True, though fate favored Winfield Scott, it did not for Napoleon, who in his 1812 invasion of Russia left the Polish border with 422,000 but returned with only some 10,000. Seven days after Davis's address to those in Macon on the 29th of September, Hood led what troops he had across the Chattahoochee River and headed to the northwest, making between 12 to 18 miles a day. By Sunday, the 2nd of October, after reported Confederate attacks on Union garrisons and the rail line northwest of Atlanta, Sherman was aware of Hood's intent. For the time being, his march across Georgia had to be postponed. Forewarned of the Confederate drive by spies and newspaper accounts, Sherman had earlier dispatched Major General George Henry Thomas and two Federal divisions to Nashville. On Monday, October the 3rd, another dilemma. Sherman learned that Hood was squarely across his supply line, the Western and Atlantic Railroad. In response, he left Major General Henry Slocum and 12,000 men in Atlanta, and with 55,000, he headed for Marietta, 15 miles to the north, and left Atlanta, I might add, in a very foul mood. On that very same Monday, George Thomas arrived in Nashville, but paying little mind to that Union development, Hood's campaign evolved. On Wednesday, October the 5th, 
with the intent of cutting Sherman's supply line, Hood ordered Confederate Major General Samuel Gibbs French and 2,000 men to move on Alatoona Pass. Responding, 29-year-old Federal Brigadier General John M. Corse commandeered 20 railroad cars and with 1,054 men moved to join the 890 who were garrisoned there already. From Kennesaw Mountain, Corse received a message. It read, General Sherman says, hold fast, we are coming. In the ensuing fight, French, the Confederate officer, believed Union forces were moving to cut him off and therefore withdrew with 779 Confederate casualties. He also left behind one million Federal rations of hardtack. As to the message Course received, then well-known evangelist Philip Paul Bliss was moved to write the hymn, Hold the Fort. Had course failed, the powers that be, Grant and the War Department, might have scratched Sherman's plans to make his march east from Atlanta. Yet, though Alatoona Pass remained in federal hands, on Thursday, October the 13th, Hood seized the railroad line as it ran to Ringgold in northwestern Georgia. That forced Sherman's hand once again. Though annoyed and angry, some two weeks into Hood's campaign, Sherman began to reason that the Confederate strategy could very well be shallow. Sherman, like around Atlanta back in July and August, hoped to force the aggressive Hood into open battle near Lafayette, Georgia. But on Monday, October the 17th, when presented with the option to give battle, Hood's wary Confederate lieutenants unanimously voted no. In truth, both generals, Hood and Sherman, were disappointed. Both, disgusted with all the shadow boxing, wanted to bring matters to a head. So an unhappy Hood marched west toward Galesville, Alabama, and then 30 miles further west to Gadsden. It was there in Gadsden that Hood made contact with P.G.T. Beauregard, who was the commander of the Confederate Military Division of the West. Hood wanted to regroup, resupply, cross north into Tennessee, smash Thomas at Nashville, then drive into Kentucky and on to the Ohio River, or cross over the mountains to help Lee back in Virginia. The man they called Napoleon in Gray, Beauregard, was dumbfounded by this pipe dream-like plan, but preferring action rather than sitting around, responded that if Hood moved, speed was essential. A quick crossing of the Tennessee River was important, so Hood began to seek suitable fords. He moved his army to Guntersville, Alabama on Saturday, October the 22nd, but found a federal presence strong enough to hamper a safe crossing. He marched to Decatur, another 45 miles to the west, and on Wednesday the 26th found the Tennessee River too high. So there was yet another 20-mile march west to Cortland, but that crossing also looked difficult. So yet another march had to be made. Hood's footsore army reached Tuscumbria in northwestern Alabama on Sunday, October the 30th. No question, this cat-and-mouse chase game irritated Sherman to no end. 
However, with the news that Hood had left Gadsden and now aware of his design to enter Tennessee, a suddenly delighted Sherman spouted, Damn him. If he will go to the Ohio River, I'll give him the rations. Let him go north. My business is down south. And yet, to address Hood's intended campaign, he sent Major General John M. Schofield and his 12,000-man 23rd Corps to Thomas up in Nashville. Also to reinforce, 13,000 more were ordered to Thomas from Missouri, and so his Nashville force jumped to some 80,000, plenty in Sherman's mind to deal with the battered Confederate Army of Tennessee. Yet, Sherman's elation was tempered. On Friday, November the 4th, that devil, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and his Confederate mounted element inflicted a loss of over $6.7 million in a raid on Johnsonville, Tennessee. The raid almost turned Sherman's march to the sea into nothing more than talk. In fact, three days earlier, Grant told Sherman, Destroy Hood first. Your plans are secondary. To that, Sherman argued that if he chased Hood any farther, the whole effect of my campaign will be lost. Instead of chasing Hood, Sherman, again to his friend and superior, reaffirmed his belief that he could cut a swath through to the seas. And he added, If we can march a well-appointed army right through Jefferson Davis's territory, it is a demonstration to the world, foreign and domestic, that we have a power that Davis cannot resist. I can make the march, and I can make Georgia howl. Finally, Grant relented. Go on as you propose. With permission, Sherman immediately began to move his army back to Atlanta. By Monday, November the 14th, they were there. The very next day, Sherman was prepared to move. So, too, was his adversary. In one of the strangest scenes in the history of warfare, two major forces, one under John Bell Hood and the other under William T. Sherman, Armies that had been locked in maneuver and combat for months now prepared to march in opposite directions, each with an objective that had nothing to do with the other. Yet, before Sherman began his 225-mile-as-the-crow-flies march across Georgia, he ordered the destruction of anything in Atlanta that might be of use to the Confederacy once they reoccupied the site. And so, Sherman's chief engineer, Captain Orlando Poe, and his crews brought down warehouses and factories. They were aided by a 21-foot-long battering ram which swung from a chain under a 10-foot-high sawhorse. As primitive as it sounds, the ram wreaked havoc. They demolished railroad stations, Crews brought down the stone and brick railroad depot. It was, as one put it, a perfect smash. They wrecked locomotives, destroyed rolling stock, and to cap the destruction, on the night of Tuesday the 15th, Poe and his men put the torch to Atlanta's industrial area. 
As one might expect, the inferno spread, leaping through an oil refinery, igniting shells left in the wreckage of an arsenal. In a scene reminiscent of Dante's Inferno, Union soldiers, as Atlanta burned, remembered a regimental band which played as the fires raged. Now, to qualify the destruction, Sherman ordered that only Atlanta's business and industrial districts be destroyed. No personal dwellings. And no fires were started until Sherman himself was present. Arsonists were to be shot on sight. But quite honestly, civilian looters had been ransacking and burning abandoned houses since Friday the 11th. Now, with flames and chaos raging, more dwellings went up as looting escalated. Out-of-control fires jumped from industrial areas into residential neighborhoods. Sherman was caught in a paradox that draped heavily round him for the rest of his days. It is true that he and most of his men had qualms about making war on the Confederate civilian population, but without question... Sherman's aim was destruction. He wanted to teach the South a painful lesson, and surely his coming march would bring out the worst in some men who let loose on the countryside would revel in their chance for plunder. Men would set fires to farmhouses and mansions, often for the sheer pleasure of watching them burn. As the last fires sputtered out in Atlanta, and with Sherman's army headed south and east, his rear guard left behind some 200 acres of blackened desolation. Captain Poe estimated that 37% of Atlanta was destroyed. No question, the business and industrial sections were wrecked. But contrary to popular opinion, Atlanta rebounded fairly quickly. Within three weeks, a post office was built, and several newspapers were back on the streets. But on Wednesday, November the 16th, Sherman, on his favorite mount, Sam, rode east. As he left behind a gutted Atlanta, his dour mood brightened. For the first time in his military career, he was completely on his own. With sick and wounded left behind, he had trimmed his army down to its fittest men, 62,000 soldiers. Of that number, 55,000 were on foot, 5,000 on horseback, and some 2,000 rode caissons or artillery horses that pulled 65 guns. Each infantryman carried 40 rounds. 2,500 light wagons carried another 200 rounds per man, and four pontoon bridges, which were to be used when confronted by water barriers. Rations were meager. Only 20 days' worth of salt pork, hardtack, coffee, salt and sugar, and there were only five days of oats and corn for livestock. It was a youthful army that marched eastward, largely men from the west. Of the Army's 218 regiments, 185 were from the farmlands of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and other parts of the Midwest. Only 33 regiments had been raised in the east, and those men were derisively called paper-collar soldiers, 
by those from out of the West. As set by Sherman, this was how they would be organized. The Army's left, or northern wing, was commanded by 37-year-old Major General Henry W. Slocum. A prickly character, Sherman liked him because he reminded Sherman of himself. Slocum, a New Yorker who had fought at Gettysburg, had under him the 14th and 20th Federal Corps. The 14th Corps was commanded by Brigadier General Jefferson C. Davis, a Hoosier with a deadly temper and quite a curious name. And because of it, some of his own men questioned his loyalty. One doubting regiment, the 17th Ohio, shaved the tail of their commander's prized gray stallion. And even with a $500 reward... No one ratted on the guilty party. In command of the 20th Federal Corps was Brigadier General Alpheus S. Williams, a lawyer and judge before the war, who was nicknamed Pops, a proven officer. Some said he looked like a dull old doctor who loved good whiskey and has a disposition to the gout. Yet the 20th had a stricter code of discipline at the beginning of their service in the West because they were primarily Easterners, the paper-collar and white-glove fellows, as the Westerners verbally tagged them. Sherman's right, or southern wing, was under pious but military lackluster Major General Oliver Otis Howard. He commanded the 15th and 17th Corps. Because of his religious fervor, his men called the one-armed general Old Prayer Book. Twice earlier in the war, he had been turned in big battles by Jackson at Chancellorsville and Ewell and Early at Gettysburg. And Sherman was not particularly a religious man, but he did admire Howard's personal courage. The 15th Corps was led by Major General Peter Joseph Oosterhaus, a German immigrant with a Prussian military education. He was so tough on his men that behind his back they called him Sow Belly. The 17th was commanded by the bluff former congressman from Missouri, Major General Francis P. Blair, who had just returned from the Army after assisting Lincoln's campaign for re-election. His men felt he drove and herded them on tough marches, so much so that while marching, they would bleat, Blair. Sherman's 5,000 cavalry were under small, lantern-jawed Brigadier General Judson Kilpatrick of the gruff, arrogant man who was known as Kill Cavalry. Sherman commented, I know that Kilpatrick is a hell of a damn fool, but I want that sort of man to command my cavalry on this expedition. Now, Sherman was fully aware that on his campaign, his men and animals would soon exhaust food and forage, so they had to keep moving. His route, as mentioned earlier, 225 miles as the crow flies, but the existing road system meant 275 miles. Indeed, it was such a daring plan that while committed and in mid-campaign, the British Army and Navy Gazette wrote 
that the march was either one of the most brilliant or one of the most foolish things ever performed by a military leader. And so, eight days after Abraham Lincoln was reelected, the march began. Condoned by a president who justifiably believed that voters wanted to see the war over. And a chief executive who wanted to make certain, as he put it at Gettysburg nearly a year earlier, that those who had given their last full measure would not have died in vain. The fate of John Bell Hood's Confederate Army assigned to George Thomas in Nashville. William Sherman was now prepared to give his undivided military attention to the state of Georgia. A vengeful angel's instrument, his army was eager to reap a destructive whirlwind. Part two will be the story of that relentless march to the city of Savannah. I hope you'll join us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.